too much of this world of the perfectly crafted post is people only saying the little bit they're sure about. this morning with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thanks, Tim. That's good to hear. Now, you would know I'm a a journalism student before I came to meet you, and we were talking a little bit last week about uh, talking about communication and media this week, and I'm sure you've got some interesting thoughts, and hopefully we can share opinions on that one, so... I don't know why you're laughing already. I think you must be worried I'm going to say something terrible about journalists. No, no, no. It's it's more that um, I would be a little bit embarrassed if I were to not understand what you were talking about that was <laughs> uh, I, I think my big thing I, you know, I want to say first is i think there should be more journalists mm. and i think they should be given more time to become experts so they can ask more difficult questions and i think there should be infinitely more sources through which they can get messages out and they should be given time to do things properly if we genuinely want an informed populace how can we do it without an intermediate group of people to make sense of big things and make them comprehensible so you subscribe to the thought that the so the media, for instance, is like the fourth estate that it's absolutely. Um, I think the only problem with the fourth estate idea is people think of it's all the same, whereas to me, there's two parts of being the fourth estate. There is providing people with information, and then there is providing people with opinions about that information, mm. and the two things should be kept very, very separate. You know, if you're watching the news, the news is about information. If you are reading a journalist's op-ed piece, that's about their opinion about information. And, you know, editorialising is fantastic. It's how we learn what people think. It's how we learn who we trust. It's how we determine who we think is credible. But we should know when there's a difference. And so how would you suppose that we teach people about this is it something that is on the, is an owner the owner should be put on journalists to tell people about their biases and or i think it needs to be both sides that journalists are taught what are you doing today are you reporting on what happened yeah or are you adding value to that through your experience and your education and it should also be that the populace understands what am i after now am i after facts or an opinion mm. and no you know, what is a credible source to get both kinds of information. So you can't have better quality journalism unless you have a more switched on society. Because, you know, as we've seen in the last few years where the media is so affected now by the need to make a profit and making a profit is becoming so hard in the digital age where more and more stuff can be provided by free or provided... Well, here we are, two enthusiasts. Yeah. Sitting in a small room trying to work out what the strange sounds in our headphones are (laughs) generating a product that is very definitely opinion. But the whole point is we're upfront about that. Mm. We're not reporting on something that just happened. We're pondering on what things mean. So it's very clear that this is about bringing experience and thought to giving people something that they might find interesting, but it's not going to give them the facts of the day. That's not our role. I think there's there's also (laughs) not that... um Oh, I, not that I want to talk ourselves up a lot, but I think that it's we're also entering the conversation in good faith and kind of accepting that we're, it's possible that we're wrong about this and we're happy to be proven proven wrong. Coming into the conversation by yeah acknowledging like oh, here's my anecdotal experience or 
accepting the flaws in our argument at yeah. the same time. And that that's really important that it seems the more that journalists get that status as this is the person in the know, mm. the more that there's a risk of ego coming into that. And as much as it's great to be confident, as much as it's great to have a personality to be sure of yourself, if you can't keep remembering you might be wrong, then you're going to have trouble. You know, the, the best way to sort of make this point to the listeners is, you know, so many of my former students have ended up in roles where they now have security clearances. Mm. So they get to see things as they're happening. Now, I'm not going to tell secrets because my students don't tell me secrets because they abide by the rules and I expect them to abide by the rules. Mm. But what becomes clear is there's a whole heap of people who know what's going in and going on in the world exactly as it happens. And then eventually things filter to the news and they get incomplete bits, which they could report on as incomplete bits, but they're going to get a lot more coverage if they turn it into a really exciting story. Mm. So if we take the example at the moment of the Saudi Arabian journalist, you know, potentially having been killed and dismembered in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, we go from drip by drip of information in the Turkish press, Mm. which is now largely under control of the Turkish government. The Turks have got long-term problems with the Saudis. The Saudis have got long-term problems with the Turks. And we're hanging on every leak like it's a fact. Not that it's a deliberately politically leaked incendiary tool of regional politics. So is that a problem with patience in the media? Is it Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The necessity of having something going across the ticker at the bottom of the screen or being able to add stuff to the next bulletin. Mm. If it's a fact, add value. If it's, you know, this has just been leaked, but provide the context. Um, I had a very interesting conversation uh, with a a journalism student in Brisbane late last year. She was about to finish her degree, had managed to get a good first job with a TV channel. It was all going brilliantly. But what we ended up talking about once the story I was helping her with was finished was, you know, we're in this digital age now where we put a bulletin up, you know, whenever something new happens. Well, how about having a list of links ready to previous stories on the topic or good reference material to understand the context? And even though you've rushed to put your new 30 seconds of audio together or your new you know, 200 words, mm. how about linking to that page of links to understand the background material? Take responsibility for giving people this new bit of information but also take responsibility for helping them to understand the context. Then rather than going to Facebook and looking at photos of cats in hats, <laughs> if you provide that page of links, maybe they'll go, well, I want to know more. Mm. And they'll go away and get the depth to go, hey, these people were telling me something that may or may not be a fact. It's certainly interesting. But look, they've also given me a way to read and listen for the next two hours to start developing some level of personal knowledge. So is it – we've kind of ta- assumed that it's this is a problem in the sense that I think we, we assume and probably correctly that it's really important to stay informed, not necessarily to the minute like you would expect from a platform like Twitter, but following the news is important when it comes to things like democratic elections and it's – it also will help you navigate the world because if you're ignoring what's going on and trying to stay blissfully ignorant, you can't expect that you'll be able to make the most of the opportunities presented to you because they'll be under circumstances that might have changed without your knowledge. 
yeah, everything's changing so fast. But I think you know, we can make an assessment about the audience, mm. and that is would podcasts be growing so fast and so many people listening if there wasn't a big body of people who want more time to think about things in more depth to genuinely understand the world they live in better. Mm. You know, to me, the explosion of podcasts is the ultimate proof that the audience aren't stupid and that they do have a long attention span. So let's start treating people as if they're smart and they can listen for 50 minutes mm. because you know more and more people are willing to do that of their own volition in their own time by seeking out the things they want to learn about. So it seems to me that the real issue at the moment perhaps for the media is, well, two, they're underestimating the audience mm. but they also think it's about providing the hourly update of whatever desperately new thing has arrived rather than going, well, okay, that's a tiny bit of what people need and want. But what they really need and want is to be able to listen to the deeper thing or watch the deeper thing when it suits them. Mm. So make your deeper product ready to stream at the end of the day. Put the link to it in your little short update as part of that context thing. Mm. But accept that we have to, well, I think we should have to be, but some people are choosing to be, I wish all people would choose to be, in essentially is what a two-speed media economy. Mm. Very fast dissemination of new facts yep. or new speculations, but call them by their name. Mm. You know, fact is Saudi guy is missing. Speculation is he was cut up in the consulate. Yeah. But define those things as being different. But then at the end of the day, when you've got time, you know, let journalists spend the whole day developing their 15-minute deeper, more thoughtful piece, which we do understand as being editorial. Mm. You know, this person's adding the value from their experience. So, you know, for understanding the Middle East, for example, and what's going on in Istanbul, the BBC's uh, sort of specialist Arab reporter, I wish I could remember his name, you realise he's just got decades of knowledge. And when they let him talk for two minutes in the morning, it's like, no, mm. let him have 15 minutes that I can stream when I want it. This is the problem with your traditional broadcast medias is that they're temporal and that you have to, when you're tuning in, you're only receiving what's going on at that minute, mm. which is what makes platforms like podcasting and YouTube or streaming services that are accessible whenever so much better suited to like long form mm. kind of discussion. And we can't necessarily convince everyone that long form's the way to go mm. and that they want to spend 90 minutes a day listening to long form journalism but if the people doing short media then connect it to long media so that it's easy for people to follow on all it's about is giving people you know the opportunity it's mm. the whole sort of nudge idea that was put forward you know by some behavioral economists that is don't ask people to do difficult things put the best choice straight in front of them which mm. means what the media needs to do is put the best choice in front, which is, hi, here's our fast update. Now, here's the better thing we did that will take you time, but you'll learn lots. Mm. And, oh, we got someone in who disagrees with us. So we're demonstrating that capacity to genuinely be the fourth estate. Rather than be politicised to the point of mediocrity, we're going to demonstrate there's two views. Just for our audiences, I think you'll probably be better at explaining this than I will. Um, can we explain what the fourth estate is? I've always just understood it is it's all the different forms of media that ensure 
an informed populace who have a way to learn and then a space within which they can discuss and challenge their viewpoints. Mm. So ideally, a fourth estate can't just ever have one opinion. Within the fourth estate, it needs to be easy for a citizen to find contrasting viewpoints that are being you know, honest about having contrasting viewpoints. Mm. What I struggled with recently in, in, in an essay for, for, your, for your course, David, was whether there was any room for journalists to even display their opinions. Like if, if the point is to inform people, what's the point in um, giving your specific opinion about the events? Well, that's that thing. If we accept that this has to be multi-layered now, someone can be reporting on facts because that's what short updates are for. Mm. But, you know, if we can have a link to someone's bio now and they go, well, this is what I studied, this is what I'm interested in, this is the kind of world I want to live in. Yeah, It's not like declaring how you vote. It doesn't have to be anything that, you know, that blunt. Mm. But you know, credibility comes from understanding the source. You know, the BBC has credibility for doing, by Western standards, robust, centred journalism for multiple decades, mm. something that most other news sources probably aspire to. Yeah. Making the deliberate choice in your RSS feed that for every overtly conservative news source, there is an overtly progressive news source. You know, there's nothing wrong with doing this. And when... When organisations or individuals are upfront about their viewpoint, then that only makes it easier for me to balance them up to make sure I get both sides. I suppose the big thing is it's kind of it's naive to assume that anything but basic information can be objective. You know, the minute we're beyond basic information and we're onto what someone thinks it means, we're immediately subjective. Mm. So why not just be honest about the subjectivity? We're in, in an age where we can communicate to each other instantly through several different platforms. I mean, we can give each other a phone call, send a send a message, you know, through Facebook or some other form of instant messenger around the world. What is does this have any negative drawbacks? Is it a purely positive revolution? Oh, look, the mediums certainly cause problems. Okay, most of the research shows that most meaning is lost in email. Hmm. Because someone sat and crafted it thinking it was very clear, but most of the research says that's not how email is then perceived. Mm. Um, instant messaging is better provided the other person feels confident to immediately respond to what you say so you can get an immediate sense of what they thought. Yeah. So instant messaging is always preferable over email. And you know, a good book, if listeners are interested, to start on this stuff is you know, Scott Birkin wrote a book called The Year Without Pants where he went from working at Microsoft to working for WordPress. And his team were dispersed across the entire planet. Mm. So he had to work out how to most effectively interact with them. And his single book is a really good way to get on top of kind of modern communications theory. In that what he found is that email would have been normal at Microsoft. It was too slow, too cumbersome, and missed the nuances that helped build a team. You know, chat was infinitely better in that everyone could jump in quickly, see stuff, ask questions, you know, put a smiley face, put a confused face, whatever was necessary, there was more meaning in it. But the most valuable thing of all and the most important thing, if communication is one-on-one, is still at a minimum to you know, speak on a call. Mm. Uh, and from a blind perspective, you know, 
I can pick a lot about emotion in people's voice, but for sighted people, sighted people do best when they can see a face. Because they read so much of the emotional content from the face, and that is the easiest way to determine if they think someone is telling truth or telling lies. Yeah. I do that all the time, actually. (laughs) Yeah. So this is why at the end of the day, even though podcasting is awesome, it's awesome until we probably have enough bandwidth to you know to do video instead mm. because as much as that is going to be not helpful for if you're driving or on the bus or on the train or running you know we probably need to get to the point of being able to record video and then just strip out the audio track mm. and not rely too much on there's things in the video you have to see because really all people need to be able to see is faces mm. it's the faces that help them determine whether they think what they're hearing is credible. So Joe Rogan does a really good job of this. I mean, he has ridiculously expensive equipment, but yeah. he will live stream his podcasts and just have the cameras pointed at faces. Yep. And so you're not adding necessarily much content, at least what would be deemed traditionally as much more content, but it actually provides a lot more yeah, emo- like emotional context. Yeah. Say, so, so really in a situation like we're doing today, all we would need is two static cameras yeah. and doing a split feed onto the screen. Yeah. You know, if people only wanted to download the audio, that's all they'd have to download. Yeah. But you know, it's my observation from years of teaching that because I listen to everything, mm. I make more of an effort to express the emotional content and the curiosity and the excitement in things. And I can get sighted people to pay more attention to me than they seem to you know, pay to other people who just talk. Mm. But that's a deliberate thing of making the talking more animated. Mm. Was that the thing with a face? A face is never still. From what I can gather, if a face is still, other people worry. Mm. You know, a face being too still is no longer sending information out. You know, so it's in that uncanny valley a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's a weird thing. I can sit very still because things are happening inside my head and I'm only listening. But what I've learned from years of teaching is let my face and be and body be as animated as I can because it helps sighted people to grasp more of what I'm trying to get across to them. Yeah. So whether, I don't know, this is an interesting thing. You've watched me teach for weeks now. Are my you know, gestures with hands and face similar or different? decided people i've never thought about it that's an interesting question i would say that your face facial gestures are similar i'm not sure that i've ever paid too much attention to your hand gestures to be honest with you that's an interesting thing we Mm. might have to try and work that out Mm. whether hand gestures and how to use your body to communicate is so deeply entrenched into our brains um or whether mine are actually a little bit different Mm. i certainly know i make a very deliberate effort when I start teaching a new group of people, to be as smiley as possible initially. Because initially going, this is a blind person. Mm. I don't want to say the wrong thing or seem dumb. And the fastest way to get people past that is if I make a blind joke and yeah. smile a lot. Yeah. yeah. It can get people past it in 10 minutes if it goes well. Which it pretty well immediately did. I remember though possibly the second or third week I was still trying to get used to not putting my hand up to talk. Which is is slightly embarrassing, but like yeah, but everyone does that yeah, for a while, and yeah. you just don't want to be the last person still doing it. Yeah, that's right. Because yeah, that's when someone gets giggled up and they go, "Yes, I had my hand up." <laughs> and I go, "Well, that's good. We can see how deep your habituation is." Yeah, which I had no idea about. Like, I just you, you don't recognize the fact that you're habituated to be polite in those kinds of ways, and mm. it's 
in some respect, it feels like in other classes where you probably still have to do this, it feels too formal or it's it's a measure of kind of silencing people so that things don't yes. get out of hand. Yes. Yeah. Like only one hand can be up at a time and only one person will be pointed at. Mm. Whereas if you work on the premise that I try and work on when teaching that, okay, if I don't make sense, tell me. Mm. If it's unclear, tell me. If you want to add something, tell me. If you're frustrated, tell me. Mm. Now it takes time for people to start, but we end up with a pretty free flow of people talking when they need to but not talking just to make noise. So I would argue that what we ended up with by halfway through the semester, which is I think the norm in my subjects, is that most people had the confidence to interject if they desperately needed to, but they knew that a couple of minutes later I'd ask, you know, anyone need to say something? Mm. So part of getting rid of the hand up thing is that the, you know, the quote unquote grown up at the front of the room surrenders their power. And says, well, I'm going to take responsibility now for giving you more opportunities as a group of people to engage in what we're doing. And, you know, good communication is not, you know, talking at people. It's yeah. talking with people. Which is perhaps, this is maybe, it connects back again to this whole platform thing is where if we have Facebook and a lot of other social medias are definitely big platforms and forums for um, political discussion particularly, that are we losing the ability to talk with people if we're just writing statuses that are intended to be read by you know hundreds of people at once? Is it then you're not really engaging in a in like interpersonal conversation? Yeah, you lose the talking with. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a, a huge issue with this idea now that we boil our mind day experience down to a sentence and a cute photo. Mm. One, it suggests people's lives are awesome all the time, whereas all we're seeing is tidbits. But it always, you know, it's reductionist and frighteningly reductionist. And maybe to the nerds who started Facebook, reductionism is all they could cope with. Yeah. Um, but I would argue that in the main, well, let's, let's just take Australian society, that's when we know. We're not a very emotive society except at sport. We're not very good at communicating with our friends about how important they are, how much they matter. And now you're giving us a medium that, you know, emphasizes the best milliseconds of our day with as much polish and the cutest photo. Mm. How is this possibly helping us to be more engaged, messier communicators? Mm. Which is really what I think we need to be. In a world where we can interact with the world through, you know, a rectangle with a glass front, it's so easy to think we're near everything, we can connect with everyone. But my fear is, and from watching the level of anxiety appear to grow in our society, that it's just making more people feel anxious that their life is not fabulous enough mm. and that they're not getting to practice messy in-person communications or messy on the telephone communications. Well, they're taking One, they're taking thin slices of um, another person's life and then able to compare themselves to whatever the picture is that this other person has uploaded that day and with you know maybe 100, 200 words of description of what their past month has been like. And it's just not enough information to not... I mean, you shouldn't really compare yourself to other people in any event, but it's not enough information to even do it accurately enough no. to, to yeah, warrant doing it. And, and then another 
issue is is that you you were kind of right in saying that people aren't being able to practice aren't able to practice messy communication enough where i'm not sure if this is just a thing of how old we are but i noticed so many people my age who dislike making phone calls would rather write an email or a message that's the point i was just about to make there's yeah. a wonderful book by sherry turkle something like reclaiming conversation mm. where she does an anecdote from a massive law firm in boston where one of the senior partners was totally baffled one day when he saw someone taking out their phone to send a text to someone two seats down. Mm. Work-related. They didn't want to talk to another person. And when he started researching, he realised his grads for the last five years don't like talking to people. (laughs) Now, that seems extreme, and it's only one anecdote, but think about what happens outside of classes at university. That everyone comes unless they immediately meet a friend, they plonk on the seats or the floor, pull their phone out and interact with their pre-existing group of friends. Yeah. Now, when I was an undergrad in the 90s, no one had a phone. If I got there and no one else was there, I'd pull out my guitar and just sit and quietly play guitar. Yeah. And then when I finished a song, someone would talk to me. Nice. Because that's always a great way to bridge a gap. Definitely. Yeah. You know, but talking was normal. Making new friends that way was normal. Um, second semester last year... I taught a couple of chutes in the bowels of sort of Barsmith South, you know, literally under the hub, which for listeners who don't know Adelaide University, it's sort of three and a half floors under a massive carport that joins three buildings together. <laughs> it, it, it's kind of like you know, the, the academic equivalent of a dungeon. Yeah. Um, but I would get there 10 minutes early because getting there meant going through lots of thin doorways and thin corridors using my cane. And if I was the one blind person going up against 200 undergrads talking to the friends they were with or looking at their phones, it was hopeless. Mm. Now, because I got there early, the students started getting there early. And the few times I got there late, they were talking to each other. Mm. And I went, is this normal? And they're like, no. And I go, well, why not? And they go, well, we only turn up early because you turn up early and we like coming and talking to you. And I go, but you're talking to each other. And they're like, well, Yeah. Like, do it in other chutes. <laughs> Take the messy communication and go wild. You know, messy communicate as broadly as you can with as many new people as you can. Hmm. So, you know, Sherry Turkle's book, Reclaiming Conversation, the real positive that she found in her research that people have lost, and I can't remember her term, but I kind of like what we've ended up with today, messy communications, hmm. the messy things of in-person getting past your discomfort. What she found is was really interesting that when she started doing research on 12 to 14 year olds, they were so sick of their mum and dads sitting looking at their phones at the dinner table. It was the kids who were demanding no phone dinner <laughs> because the kids felt they were missing out. And that, you know, Sherry Turkle by the end of the book said, you know, we've got major problems with this loss of ability to communicate effectively. But it already seems kids who need communication so much to grow and become the people they want to be are already going, we're not happy and we want this to be different, which I think is fabulous. It's interesting that 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 observation is coming from younger people who have already been probably habituated to use those platforms for their their own social uh, well-being. I mean, it's... I, I mean, I certainly felt as if I grew up in an age where not having Facebook or 
or even MySpace back in the day was like it was almost kind of social suicide. You weren't able to mm. be able to you weren't able to organize, you know, um, meeting other people unless mm. it was through those mediums. Yeah, again, the idea of even well, I got my first mobile phone in 1994, mm. and I was one of the first people in sort of my social networks to have a mobile phone because being blind it was just really helpful. But yeah, at that point it was still the odd thing. Mm. And now we have more more mobile phones in the world, you know, than we have what is it? There's more phone numbers in the world now than there are people. Something crazy like that. Okay. It's not mobile phones, but I think it's more phone numbers in the world than there are people. Mm. It's some ridiculous number. But uh, you know, the other thing sort of Sherry Turkle comes up with in her book and it's the most frightening bit of her book on the loss of the ability for messy communication, is she got invited to come into a very good school just outside of New York where the teachers were horrified with the gradual erosion of empathy in the students. That empathy comes from messy communication, hearing voices, seeing faces, seeing the emotional implications of what you say. Whereas if you take sort of the social competitiveness of kids and then give them a medium where they can say the worst thing but without really seeing the consequences, well, that's exactly what kids will do. Mm. They'll say something brutal and it won't prick their consciousness because there was no response. They put it out there onto the you know rectangular device with the glass front <laughs> and it hit the other person like a brick but they didn't have to see what they'd done to another person. Mm. And their school knew they couldn't you know, ban all devices all the time, but they were horrified of the loss in empathy. Now, I would argue teaching in universities, I haven't seen the loss of empathy. I think, if anything, people are more desperate to connect and be empathetic. What appears to have been lost from what I see is that ability to willingly go talk to a stranger just because. That's no longer normal, and it used to be normal, mm. that most people were brave enough. So in the first few weeks where I told all of you during the breaks, if you're not going to go get a coffee or go to the bathroom, go talk to someone you don't know. Now, the fact that you lot did it for three weeks was awesome, mm. but I don't think I should have pushed it beyond the three weeks. I think I'd probably used up the benefit of that tool. <laughs> yeah, It worked, but I, I'll never know how many people didn't get up and talk to someone new. I was happy how many voices I heard. But it certainly wasn't everyone who was still sitting in the room. And how would you even know whether they were talking to someone new or not? Because Precisely. Means, the thing is they might have met someone in the first week. But I think that's still an achievement by any stretch. It's because I've definitely been in classes where I've made absolutely no connection whatsoever. And I mean, that's my responsibility as well as just the... Yeah, but communication, and this is the thing, one person can wreck it, but mm. it takes two to make it work. Mm. You can be the person brave enough to go talk to another person. But if they don't immediately respond well, you'll feel dumb and you'll walk away. And this is the terrible thing with messy communication. It always does require two people. Yeah. Um, jump here into another very interesting author because I, I think it's a good way into making sense of this. You know, There's a very smart psychologist called Marilee Adams and she's really concluded that it's the kind of questions that people ask that make the you know, the biggest difference in how well people do at getting along with other people. Mm. And she divides it up into you either ask learner questions of other people or you ask judger questions. And by learner, what she means is you're always open to the world and other people. 
what she means by judger questions is you're going into every conversation wanting to judge someone else to come out superior over them. Mm. So, you know, the difference would kind of be, you know, if you meet someone, a learner question might be, you know, hi, say your name and go, how come you're here today? Whereas, you know, a, a judger question would be to come up and go, hi, I'm already bored, what do you think of it? You know, one is automatically saying whatever you think is the best, someone else needs to a degree or the conversation's over. Um, and you know, she's written books from the perspective of how this judge-a-learner thing would work in business, how it would work being a primary school teacher, trying to get people to understand that if they ask an open question that lets someone else offer things to the, the conversation as an equal and the conversation grows between two people, we inevitably get better outcomes. Mm. If someone tries to control it and tries to make sure they're right, you know, that whole thing of when you're in a conversation and if someone begins their next sentence with, of course you would agree, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Perfect example of a judge of perspective. They've judged what's right, they've judged they want to be right, and they've judged that unless you agree with them, you're no use to them. Oh, yay. What's the point in entering that conversation? You're not going to, be, you're not going to learn anything from it. It's... Precisely. Have you been in a conversation where you get the person who at the end of someone's very thoughtful sentence totally diminishes it by going, correct? Yes. So they've, they've asserted their pre-existing knowledge on that topic. So they've yeah, yeah. diminished your position so, in the conversation. So you've just explained everything you're saying. At this point, I would jump in and go, correct. Mm, correct. Taking everything you've just put together carefully away from you. Mm. Say, oh, well, isn't it nice I let you finish that? Seeing you've all you've done is reinforce what I already believe. Mm. You know, and I've met some people who are incredibly intelligent, offer incredibly thoughtful things to conversation, but then drop that correct word in. Mm. And I'm like, oh, you just lost 90% of the room. Well done, you. <laughs> And in the main, because it's about them, not about the interplay of conversation, they don't seem to even realise they've done it. And and do they care? That's that's. A... I think they care mm. when they don't get the outcome they want, and when they find <laughs> themselves not included in the post-meeting enjoyable conversation over coffee. Yeah, yeah. I think they care when they wonder why they're suffering from some degree of social exclusion. Mm that the only people who tolerate are their long-term friends who've you know, been rolling their eyes for so long. So in an age where things are too, too, too instant but also there are too many people saying and not enough people listening, you, know, you have this anxiety about saying the wrong thing. What can we do to make it better? Is it going to be a situation where we have to case by case, like each person has to make an effort to be a bit more ready to yeah. say hello. I, I don't see any other choice other than you take responsibility for starting. But no, if someone doesn't reciprocate, you don't take responsibility for that bit. Mm. You just move on to the next person. Because it takes two people to have really effective communication, you can try and start it. And if you've started in a way that really gave someone a chance to meet you in a halfway space, somewhere new that the two of you were making together and they fail to engage... That's not your responsibility. But don't waste time. Go find the next person. Because when you're practicing how to communicate, well, really? It doesn't matter who you communicate with. The point is to communicate. So really for all the people out there who text when they haven't talked to someone they care about for a week, 
Mm. A friend going, oh, just send a quick text and go, hey, how are you? Well, if you've got two minutes, call them. Mm. It makes a big difference. Yeah, like I've got sighted friends who when they're overseas or, or working overseas go, oh, can we use FaceTime and use video? I'm like, well, why? Oh, yeah, you, could, you guys will do better if you can see. Mm. Yeah, mm. Me smiling at you will make you out, all right, we'll use FaceTime. Doesn't do me any good, does you any good, that's mm. fine. We got the bandwidth. So if I can make the effort to go, let's use video because it's good for you, mm. even though it you know, does nothing for me being blind, use the advantage of the bandwidth. You know, call rather than text if you've got the time. If people don't have time, they can tell you. But in the main most people will be grateful you care enough to call. More often than not, I've found it so much easier to convey the actual message yeah. over a phone than it is. To How many times have you started a text thing thinking it was a simple thing, you've seen from the person's response, it's become a complicated thing, mm. and the fastest thing is just a ring? Yep. This is a problem with ambiguity. It's yeah. So what we're in is a world of instant ambiguous <laughs> and incomplete communication mm. and that this idea that we're more connected than ever is we're more incompletely and more unemotionally connected than ever. Mm. But if we want to really connect, get that face on the screen or actually ring them or actually make the time to meet them. So part of this thing of having so much information is we now get rushed into doing too many things. And I'm starting to ask the question some weeks now, is it just that I'm getting older or is it the sheer number of stupid things I try and get done in a week? <laughs> and what I'm recognising is, okay, I'm getting older, that's got to have some impact. Mm. But the more than anything, it's trying to do even more crazy numbers of things in a week because, you know, the calendar says there's empty space on my phone. Yeah, and I get a bit like that. And I recently found myself this year just being able to throw myself into specific things more deeply and efficiently by cutting down the amount of things that I do. Yeah. But large part of finding more time has been putting my phone down, ignoring it. Yep, and a deliberate culling of things mm. to give time to do things properly. That's right. And I think, you know, um, I can't remember where the data on this is, whether it's in Sherry's, Sherry Turkle's book on Reclaiming Conversation or if I read it somewhere else. But, you know, the benefit it does for another human that they see your phone ring but you don't answer it. Mm. You keep talking to them. You let it go to messages. Mm. You know, letting people know they matter enough that you can check your phone in a minute. Whoever it is, you can call back yeah. or text back. But giving people that time. Time is the most precious thing we have in a world where it's now the most manic thing in our lives, <laughs> managing time. So really, find the time to talk to people. And better yet, for sighted people, look at the person you're talking to. Mm. That that's got to be the fundamental of communication that is currently, despite all our technology, lacking. You know, I hear from academics constantly that they go, oh, yeah, well, I scheduled my consultation hours, but no one turned up. Mine are consistently full. Mm. And all right, part of it's because if someone comes in and fixing their problem takes two minutes, but they just need to have a chat to feel more confident in the subject, I'll spend the 15 minutes talking to them. Mm. Was it the most constructive use of 15 minutes in the world, you know, according to managerial theory? No. Does that person feel more confident about the course and knowing they can come and talk to me if they're not feeling confident? Mm. Yes. So at a human level, the win is massive. Mm. And we need wins at human levels if we're going to fix more complicated things. And that applies to even 
the media landscape as well, right? It's that we need to make time to be able to look into things a bit more deeply than what you might hear in the two-second summary on sunrise in the morning. Well, absolutely. Even if we take – let's take a a popular program like Q&A. The audience is too big and they rush through topics too fast. Yep. And the audience don't get enough opportunities to keep asking questions about what matters to them Mm. because at the end of the day, the program exists for the benefit of the audience, not for the panellists to show off. So to me, there are too many people sitting up the front on Q&A who are essentially speaking in what Marilee Adams would call judger questions. Mm. They're judging other panellists and they're using the audience to do it. Oh, it's, it's they often come across more like a presidential debate than they do yeah. um, you know, audience question and answer forum, you know. So let's put at the other end something like, you know, Richard Feidler's program Conversations, mm. where he just does a heap of research and sits with a person and has a really interesting conversation. Mm. That's too slow for us to learn lots about things that happen today. Yeah. So we need Richard at one end. We need the two of us sitting talking to each other somewhere towards Richard's end. Mm. But we also need programs where there's three or four panellists, 10 or 12 audience, but it's all about the audience driving it, mm. that the audience genuinely get to drive it. And that if they've got political agendas and that they harp on, that the rest of the audience go, well, why didn't you admit you only want to prove you're right? Mm. Mm. You know, where's the opportunity on Q&A for the audience to say, you're now adding to my understanding. You're only adding to your confirmation of your position. Because I think what this, maybe the age of, of Google and everything is still failing is that if you ask too specific a question into a search, like a search engine, it's not going to give you the, a direct answer that you want. So we still require these interactions with politicians or yeah. um, other people that come onto Q&A or you know, is me sitting here next to you, me asking you questions where you're, I can ask the obscure, very specific questions that come to my mind and you're able to answer them way better than I would be able to enter into a search engine. Yeah, because again, it's that thing of, you know, the fuzzy logic of being a human sitting with another human. Mm. I suppose the other side of it is too, too much of this world of the perfectly crafted post is people only saying the little bit they're sure about. So how do you deal with uncertainty in this world? Mm. Well, you know, you deal with uncertainty by saying, I don't know. Yeah. But I know how we research it. Mm. I know how we can work on it together if it matters enough. I know we could find some time next week to make that the topic. So everyone now has to be in an expert who's absolutely certain Mm. and the least trustworthy people in the world are experts who are absolutely certain. You know, all the work um, done by Philip Tetlock, you know, books like Thinking Fast and Slow, Super Forecasting, Mm. other stuff like this, all comes down to you only want to trust an expert who can admit they're wrong and can admit they've changed their mind when the evidence changed. Mm. If the evidence has changed and the expert hasn't, don't trust the expert. So we're full of talking heads who wait for the phone call to do media Mm. who are so sure. Well, why are they so sure if the evidence changed? There's a great example of this um, with, now I'm going to forget his name. Uh, It's Alan, he killed a bunch of elephants. Alan Savory? Alan Savory? 
I'm already not liking the guy for killing elephants. Oh, okay. Yep. So, yeah. <laughs> His name's Alan Savory, who I believe in the 80s recommended that the best way to improve, I believe, elephant numbers was to cull a bunch of them off initially, which um, is actually true for like deer species like that. Oh, yeah, they, but they, we've, we've taken out alpha predators. Deer in most places like North America, UK, Europe cause mm. monumental problems now because they're out of control. Yeah. So in the 80s, that was his recommendation was to kill a bunch of elephants and then later on just received so much like flack for it because mm. it was obviously wrong. It was the wrong thing to do. It hasn't improved. It's made elephant numbers, population numbers worse. Mm. So anyway, he's come back in you know, 20 years later, more 30 years later really from after that event and said, I, I admit I'm wrong, you know, all this kind of stuff and it still should be a respected respected scientist and he uh, is now professing stuff about holistic land management but so many people say that you know we shouldn't listen to him because yeah he said this thing once yeah yeah so you've really tapped into something important here we're now in the world where because so much stuff has been digitized Mm. someone can go on january the 23rd 1999 (laughs) you said well guess what i was unevolved Mm. i'm now more evolved Mm. if you give me the extra two minutes maybe i can tell you why my position is better than it was and yeah, your example is perfect. Mm. Yeah. My response to someone wanting to kill elephants is, I'm already not a happy camper. Yeah. You better prove to me, well, this is a good idea. Yeah. But again, it's the charity of going, okay, that's contentious. Mm. Why? Yeah. Oh, you've changed your mind. Why? So unless we're willing to leave the time for why, we're failing to be good participants in messy communication. Yeah. Now, this idea now of leaping back and pulling things up that politicians said five years ago. Well, five years ago was a different world. You know, so much has changed. Better to ask another question now. Why do you believe what you just said? And judge the veracity of their argument. Not the you know the five-word claim of what they believe. Why do they believe it? Mm. It's, um, what, how do they say, is a uh, quay? Ad hominem, it's like a yeah. the hypocrisy fallacy. Like it's when someone makes a mistake in one area, you can apply that to anything else that they've said. So yeah, which is another problem, you know, with yeah. our residual mammalian unconscious brain. Mm. When life was simple, someone made a boo boo. It probably meant they were going to make lots of boo boos. Mm. The more complicated our world gets, the more complex the things we have to do. The more likely that we can make a mistake in one thing, but do well in another. So from a very practical perspective, at least once a week I walk into a wall. It's part of being blind. <laughs> Does that make me stupid? No, no, it just means my eyes don't work. Yeah. Now, I can get away with that, oops, because I'm blind. Mm. That's a blind thing. Mm. But how many people, if they made a mistake in one way, would our immediate assumption be, oh, there's something wrong with how they think. Mm. They make dumb mistakes. So just to recap, just to leave it, what can we recommend our audience does on a day-to-day basis to help perhaps the the global communication crisis let's say work for them or work better what how can they help the situation and then how can they make communication between themselves and other people for social reasons work better i suppose that the first small thing is understand the distinction between news as getting new information Mm. and you know editorial as getting someone's opinion on information yeah decide if you're looking for news or editorial and learn how to assess if something is news 
or editorial. Mm. That, that's a great first start. And in terms of communication with other humans, well, we've all got these apparently big social networks thanks to our smartphones. Mm. How about talking to someone in that list? Mm. How about meeting through a coffee so you can look at their face and get you know all that extra information? You know, instead of being slightly connected to lots of people, if we all just invest a bit more in being more connected to a few more people mm. and that people do this en masse, people's ability to take risks to enhance communication, it'll get easier, it'll be less frightening mm. and that that would be a great place to be. You know, every day if I'm walking down the street and I find an obstacle, like at the university at the moment, there's a fence up around Union House, you can't get to it from two <laughs> whole sides. Yeah. And I'm wandering down this and going, well, I know there's meant to be working on this, but where? Oh, I just found a fence. And a stranger wandered up and said, hey, dude, where do you need to get to? Uh, fourth floor of Union House. Uh, you want me to show you? That will be cool. Thank you. I chatted to that person for four minutes <laughs> as we walked around. That's my normal day being blind. Mm. But how many people would end up talking to a stranger for four minutes as part of their normal day? Mm. It was nice. I know there's another nice person in the world. I may never run into that person again, but I'm glad there's another nice person. Mm. So you know, the little thing of taking risks and not crazy risks, like you know, don't talk to the person who looks like you know, they've done speed on the train on the way home, yeah. on the final train. <laughs> but if you're sitting in a room full of people who seem normal and safe and ordinary, talk to someone you don't know. Give it a go. If they don't respond well, talk to the next one. Mm. Talk to someone until someone talks back and you go, well, that's better. I know there's another vaguely nice and interesting person. It's a good place to be. And then if you're, not, if, then if you're you've had too many bad experiences and you're not feeling like talking to anyone else, you can put your head, headphones in, which is the global signal for don't talk to me. Yeah, but the problem is it's not just the global signal for don't talk to me. It's the default setting for what to do yeah. when one of your friends or family are not immediately beside you. Yep. So, yes, earbuds, wonderful thing, love them. <laughs> Don't stick them in until you're absolutely sure there's no one to talk to. Yes. Well, thank you for that, David. It's been uh, really, really interesting to kind of unpack a lot of those things with you. Thank you for the opportunity again, and all you journalism students out there, fight the good fight because mm. we value what you do. Definitely. Definitely.